on the truth that God became man. Last week, we focused on the deity of Jesus Christ, just recognizing that he truly is God, that there is no separation, no distinction between the person of Jesus and the person of God himself. And then this morning, we want to look at how that God became man. And so again, we have four scripture readings that make clear that Jesus indeed became man, just like you and me. And so first, Jackie will come up and read for us from Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, which encourages us to walk in the same way that Jesus walked in the humility of his manhood. Then John will come and read for us from Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, which tells us how Jesus can sympathize with us. Kathy will come and read for us from John 1, 14. And then finally, Claire will come and read for us from 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. So let me uh, just say a brief prayer over these scriptures, and then I'll invite Jackie up to read. Heavenly Father, do open our eyes right now to your word, Lord. Help me in the preaching of your word that you might be glorified. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hebrews four fourteen through 16 Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Well, beloved, as we look at the incarnation, the God becoming flesh in Jesus Christ this morning, I want to look at it in terms of how it fits within the Christian faith overall. Because on the one hand, there is a danger, is there not, of thinking about the reality of Jesus being both God and man and having it merely be a philosophical exercise, right? Like some truth that we're supposed to believe that doesn't have any practical implication on our lives today. But the reality is much different. The reality is if Jesus indeed came as the God-man, then that has everything to do with how we live our lives today. It has everything to do with how we worship God. It has everything to do with the redemption that God was going to bring. And so in the sermon this morning, I do first want to look at what does it mean that Jesus is the God-man? What does it mean that Jesus is both fully God and fully man? 
And then from there, I want to look at the implications of that. What does that mean for our salvation? Why does that matter? And so my hope is that even if the first part may seem a little dry and abstract to you as we look at just the truth of Jesus being God and man, my hope is that as we then move to the implications, it'll suddenly start to become very beautiful. It'll suddenly start to make sense why this truth is so important, why these distinctions matter so much, because it's only when we get the truth of Jesus being God and man right that then we can get the right understanding of our redemption, of the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. So that's where we're going this morning. So first, the doctrine of Jesus being fully God and fully man. Now, if you have been a Christian for any time at all, or you've studied Christianity from the outside, well, then you likely know that Christians believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. That's kind of the simple statement that I always grew up hearing and that I grew up believing in the church. Now, this statement may seem simple. Maybe it even seems common sense to you if you've been a Christian for a long time. But the reality is that this should be very difficult for us to wrap our minds around, right? The idea that God could be man and the idea that someone could be fully God and fully man, not somehow the lesser of one or a greater of the other. And yet this statement that Jesus is fully God and fully man, I think turns out to be a very good summary of what Christians have always believed about the person of Jesus Christ. So let's just take this statement, fully God and fully man, and let's look at how we can kind of unpack this or really understand the full significance of this. The first thing this must mean if Jesus is fully God and fully man is that this cannot mean that Jesus is some mixture of God and man, right? If Jesus were some mixture of God and man, well, then he wouldn't be fully God, nor would he be fully man. He would be some third thing, right? He would be some hybrid, some half God, half man. And so if we are to believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man, well, that means that we must believe that Jesus has two distinct natures. He has the nature of God that is just as much God as God himself, and he has the nature of being a man that is as much like a human being as you or I are. So there are two natures in Jesus Christ because he is fully man and fully God, and those things cannot be mixed. Yet just as they cannot be mixed, they also cannot be divided, right? So another error in thinking about the person of Jesus Christ is to start thinking about Jesus as if he were two different people, as if he were somehow schizophrenic. Like sometimes he thought and acted like God, and then other times he thought and acted like a man. But of course, that's not true. Jesus didn't have two different personalities. He didn't have split personality. He was one person. He was one person with two natures. Here's how the Chalcedonian definition puts it. Last week, I talked about the Nicene Creed. Well, even after the Nicene Creed was written, there continued to be arguments about it for the next hundred years. And so there was another council that happened a hundred years later in Chalcedon to finally really try to finalize some of these things. And so here's how the church council at Chalcedon put it. It says that Christ is recognized in two natures. Without confusion, so that's what I was just explaining, there's no confusion, so there's no mixture. Without change, without division, so these cannot be split apart, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union. So saying just because they come together doesn't mean that God is less than God or that man is more than man. 
but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence. Subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. And so that, ever since that has been written, has been the orthodox way, the biblical understanding of who Jesus is. Two natures subsisting in one person. So again, fully God and fully man means just what it sounds like. It means that on the one hand, Jesus has in perfection and without any alteration the nature of God. And it means on the other hand, Jesus has in perfection and without alteration the nature of man. And because God is not man, because godness and humanity are two very different things, It means that Jesus has two different natures, which are nevertheless absolutely joined in one person. To put it a different way, you could ask the question about Jesus in reference to God, and the answer would always be yes. So is Jesus omniscient like God? Yes. Is he omnipotent like God? Yes. Does he have a beginning? Does he have no beginning like God has no beginning? Yes. And so on. Jesus has all the attributes of God. Everything true about God is true about Jesus. But then, at the very same time, you can ask questions about Jesus being a man. And again, the answer would also always be yes. Did Jesus have a beginning as a man? Yes, when he was conceived in Mary's womb. Did he have to read and study to come and learn new things? Yes, he did, just like any other human being. Did he get tired and have to go to sleep? Yes, he did, just like every human being. So we can ascribe things to Jesus that he is fully God, and we can ascribe things to Jesus that he is fully man. And yes, it is hard to understand how these things can go together at the same time. But this is the truth of God's word. So Jesus is a unique person in all of human history in that he, and he alone, has two natures. When Jesus became man, his nature as God never ceased to operate as it did throughout eternity past. And yet this godness, this divinity, was concealed by the putting on of a new nature, the nature of mankind. And so Jesus was able to live on two levels, even being one person. As John Murray said, he became poor not by addition, or not by subtraction, but by addition. As Paul writes in Philippians 2 that we read just a few moments ago, it says that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 6 there in Philippians 2 says that Jesus was in the form of God. That's simply another way of saying that because Jesus was God, he appeared as God. But then verse 7 says that he emptied himself. That word emptied is elsewhere translated as nullified or made to no effect. In other words, when Jesus became man, he didn't pour out something from himself that he had before, meaning he didn't pour out his deity so that suddenly Jesus was no longer God. No, all he did was nullify the effect of his deity, or he he hid it, he cloaked it, he blunted the effect of his deity in becoming man. 
And so, as Paul says in the previous verse, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And this was even though Jesus truly was very God, a very God. When he put on flesh, he simply no longer pressed for his rights as God. He concealed his godness. We have a picture of this idea very close at hand. There was a show on TV for a long time. I don't know if it's still on TV called Undercover Boss. And the idea, as I understand it, is that they would take some owner of a company and they would put this owner as a low-level employee in the company so that this so that this owner could understand what it would be like to work in the company. But of course, even as this owner becomes this low-level employee, uh, he doesn't lose his ownership of the company, right? He doesn't have less authority than he had before. No, in becoming an employee, he just agrees to act as a new hire for however long the show tells him he must act as a new hire. And so in this way, Jesus did the same thing. When he stepped down and became flesh, he didn't lose his rights as God. He didn't lose his identity as God. He simply stopped pressing for his advantages as God. He stopped pressing for his privileges as God. He emptied himself of all of those things. He became nothing. He, be, he put on the form of a servant instead of insisting on his rights as God himself. And so this is what it means that Christ emptied himself. He doesn't give up his godness. He doesn't cease to be God. Rather, he humbles himself by addition, by putting on the form of humanity and allowing his humanity to cloak his true divinity. The gospel tells us, the gospels tell us numerous times that even when Jesus took on flesh, he still would sometimes act out of his identity as a son of God. He would sometimes act in miraculous ways precisely to demonstrate to onlookers who he truly was. Nevertheless, Scripture is always clear that Jesus never did this simply to flex his muscles as God or to demand worship as God. Rather, he only ever exercised his divine power in service to the mission that God the Father sent him on for the good of the people that God the Father sent him to. As Mike Richard put it, whenever any exercise of his divine power or any manifestation of his divine glory would have functioned to benefit only himself or to ease the limitations of a truly human existence and would not for, and would not be for the benefit of those he came to serve in accordance with his mission he refused to exercise those prerogatives so in other words Jesus had all authority he was very god a very god and yet when he became flesh he said i am no longer going to use that to my advantage or simply to show off or to demand praise rather i am going to humble myself and use it in service to those whom i have come to save imagine someone with absolute authority absolute power not once using that power to his own advantage or simply to aggrandize himself there was a contemporary of Abraham Lincoln, Robert Ingersoll. He said something about Abraham Lincoln that I think just applies so perfectly to Jesus himself in this instance. Robert Ingersoll said, Nothing discloses real character like the use of power. It is easy for the weak to be gentle. Most people can bear adversity. But if you wish to know what a man really is, give him power. This is the supreme test. It is the glory of Lincoln that having almost absolute power, he never abused it except on the side of mercy. 
And beloved, this is the test that Jesus had. Having absolute power, was he going to use that power for his own advantage? To get a leg up on others, to get a head, to make a name for himself. And Jesus never once exercised his power in that way. Even when it came to the most critical moment, when he was being taken to the cross, in Matthew 26, 53, we are told that Jesus had a legion, 12 legions of angels that he could have called on in that very moment to come and rescue him from that cross. And yet he refused to call on these legions of angels and instead chose death upon a cross. Never once did Jesus exercise his rightful power to his own advantage. Rather, he gave himself to the uttermost for those whom he came to save. Beloved, if any of you think you could exercise restraint even close to that this morning, then I would simply say that you are dead wrong. (laughs) I know that I myself, if I had anything near the power that Jesus had in his humanity, would never deal with it rightly. And yet Jesus, all his life long, lived humbly as a servant, even in having all power. So now that we've looked somewhat at this doctrine of who Jesus Christ is, and perhaps in a little bit more detail than you would have preferred, let's ask the question, why does this matter? Why have Christians thought in such mind-numbing detail about this reality of Jesus being the God-man? Well, On the one hand, I would tell you that thinking about God, thinking about the person of Jesus Christ, is good in itself. For people that love God, thinking about God and considering his character is a wonderful way to spend your time. It's true of anything we love, right? If you love someone else, just part of the nature of loving someone else is wanting to know them, wanting to spend time with them, wanting to experience their personality, the things that they like, the things that they hate— wanting to be closer to them. And so, in some measure, it is worthwhile, simply as an activity in itself, to say, Lord, I just want to know you more. I want to know how to think of you rightly. Because we love him and because we want to know him. It's the natural spring that comes up out of the Christian's heart to want to know these things. And so it is good in itself. And yet, thinking about God, thinking about the person of Jesus Christ is not at all a dead end or something with no practical effect. After all, God is the one who both created the world and then redeemed the whole world. And therefore, if we come to understand God more, then we're also going to come to understand more about the world we live in, how we can serve in the world we live in, how we can love the world we live in, how the world around us will be redeemed, because all of those things flow from the very nature and character of God. And so try thinking of this teaching on the incarnation, on Jesus being fully God and fully man is a kind of keyhole where when you look through this keyhole, you can see this whole world on the other side that just seems radiant and vibrant and full of color because it is going to enliven everything about our faith and about our life today. And so as we consider the significance of Jesus being fully God and fully man, Just consider this question of why. What is so significant about God becoming man? Why did God become man? After all, it seems clear, even just from the short description 
of the incarnation that I've given, that it was no simple task or no natural thing for God to become man. It was quite complicated. It involves a lot of difficulty. Surely there would be more straightforward ways for God to save the world. Well, D.A. Carson said well in his book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, he said, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. In other words, do you see how the person that God sends speaks to what our deepest need is? God wanted to accomplish redemption on the very deepest level, and therefore he had to send someone to that effect, to that purpose. And so who is it that God sent? Well, beloved, God sent himself. He sent the God-man. He sent a man who in his own flesh, in his own existence, was fully God and fully man. In other words, he sent someone who reconciled in his body God to man, who made God and man both one. Beloved, what this means is that our greatest need was not economic or entertainment or health or politics or anything like that. Our greatest need was relational. We had been distanced from God enormously. There could be no union between God and man. And so God, in sending someone who was the God-man, was saying, what you most need is me. What you most need is to come into relationship with me. And not simply relationship in terms of knowing God as someone out there, someone who's a friend or a king or an advisor or something like that, but knowing God as someone who is actually joined to us in the very deepest parts of our being, just as Jesus Christ himself was joined by both God and man in one being. Beloved, I know most of us here this morning consider ourselves Christians, and I think probably the error that we are most prone to in thinking about our faith is thinking that our faith is mainly a matter of moral improvement. Thinking that it's mainly a matter of us becoming better people, us learning to obey God more and more. But beloved, if God simply wanted us to be better people, he didn't need to send himself in the flesh. He would simply have needed to send a great teacher or moral instructor. The same goes for all the other needs we potentially have that Carson outlined. If Christianity were only about becoming good people, it would be quite boring. You can go to the bookstore today and you can see hundreds of books on the shelf about how to become a better person, how to achieve the goals that you want to achieve. Beloved, Christianity is not about self-improvement. It is about becoming sons of God. It is about God in us. It's about gaining a whole new nature that we did not have before, that is just like God's own nature, so that we can be as near to God as sons are to a father, to experience the bliss of eternal union with God. 
This, beloved, is why the incarnation matters. This is why it matters that Jesus is both very God, a very God, and that he is fully man. First an embryo in his mother's womb, then a baby, then a toddler, then a boy, then a man, just like us. If God just wanted to teach us to be good people, if he just wanted to teach us to live better, all this philosophy about Jesus being the God-man would be entirely unnecessary and beside the point. But God wanted much more. He wanted us to be his offspring, as it were, his children. In John chapter 1, in the very middle of John, talking about how the word became flesh in verses 12 and 13, he says that to all who did receive him, that is, receive Jesus, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, just like, remember, Jesus was born, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Beloved, this is the beating heart of Christianity. This is what God wants from us. This is what God wants for the world. Not simply that we become better people, but that we become children of God, sons of God. Indeed, no less sons of God than Jesus himself was a son of God. To become so joined with Jesus that we experience the same reality that Jesus experienced of knowing that he was fully a son of the Father. And yet, at the same time, being fully man. And because this was God's hope, because this is what God is doing on the earth today, it necessitated a bigger and larger plan than just sending a teacher or sending a politician or sending an economist or sending anything like that. He had to send someone who was the God-man, who was fully God and fully man. To put it simply, if we were to become sons of God, then God himself would have to become a son of man. There would have to be a fusion between God's nature and our nature, so strong and so clear that even all the corruption of our human nature would not be able to overcome our union with God's pure nature. And so, Jesus, who is fully God, put on flesh so that we ourselves could come to enjoy union with God. Again, understand that in the Christian faith, we should not merely be talking about morality, our actions, our behaviors. We should be thinking more and focus more on the stuff that we are actually made of. What is our deeper nature? What is our heart? What direction is our heart pointing us in? What makes us human beings in the first place? You see, humanity had a problem before the coming of Jesus. Much of humanity still has the same problem, which is why we need to be about the business of evangelism. We're very prone to say and to think that our sins are the problem that are keeping us from God. And this is very true. Our, our sinful actions do keep us from union with God. But too often we think of our sins as discrete actions that we take. That we only do these sins here and there. And if only we could stop doing those specific actions, if only we could stop those behaviors, then somehow we would be ripe for union with God. But this is not how the Bible conceives of sin at all. The Bible 
does, does conceive of sin as different actions that we can perform, but more deeply, the Bible conceives of sin as something that pollutes our very heart, that's something that makes us corrupt to the core. Sin is not merely actions we take. Sin is something that we are. The analogy of a virus or an infection is very helpful. When you have a virus or an infection, you see different symptoms, do you not? Maybe you have fever or chills or shivering or a rash or cough. You have all these different symptoms that take place, these things that you can see with your eyes. And yet, if you were to go to a doctor and the doctor only ever told you how he would treat the symptoms, how he would treat the cough or the rash or the fever, you would wonder what the doctor is doing, right? Because you would say, well, I know I have a virus or I know I have an infection. Can't we get rid of that? Can't we get rid of the virus or the infection? You'd be troubled if the doctor only ever dealt with the symptoms. Well, such it is with Christ. Yes, God could have gone about trying to relieve our symptoms, trying to simply teach us how to be less sinful in various ways. And many of us as believers probably actually spend far too much of our time worrying about these symptoms instead of worrying about the root cause of our sins. We think so much about the various actions we do that are wrong, but we forget about the deeper disease that we really have, the virus that has infected our souls. And that virus, that disease is deeper and much worse than any sort of action that we could perform outwardly. We are crooked all the way down. What David says of himself in the Psalms is true of all of us. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Even from conception, we have this crooked nature. Or as Ephesians 2 verse 3 says, We are all by nature children of wrath. By nature children of wrath. Not just because of certain things that we do, but because of who we are. The problem is our nature, not just our outward actions. And so, beloved, if the problem is our nature, then what sort of cure do we need? God had to do something about our nature if we were to be made right with God, if we were to be made straight, not merely our actions. And we all, as Christians, even today, need to be much more concerned about our nature than we are about the various symptoms that we exhibit. Now, the symptoms can obviously indicate to us that something is wrong, right? But simply treating the symptoms is not going to get at the root cause of the problem. We can't go about finding the cure just by treating the symptoms. And so here is the reality and wonder of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He came not merely to show us the way out of darkness— not merely to teach us how to change our behaviors, not merely to give us a new self-help plan, not merely to do something about our symptoms at all. He came to cure the disease itself. He came to get rid of the infection, to kill the virus that is eating away at our souls. And notice I say that he came to do these things. This is so important. This is a work of Jesus Christ. It is not our work. We cannot cure ourselves. We can only look to Christ in order to receive the cure. We must accept it as something that comes from Christ, who is the God-man. Colossians 1.21, And you 
who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. This is something that Jesus Christ has done. And so the question is, if Jesus is out there, if Jesus is the God-man, the one who displays for us this perfect union of God with man, and if we are over here with this sinful nature that we cannot cure, then how do we get these two things joined together? How do we plug our extension cord, as it were, into this outlet of God's power, into the outlet of the power of the incarnation of God himself on this earth? Well, beloved, the teaching of Scripture is very clear on this point. We get the power of God, we get the cure for our souls by faith. By faith, it's that we come to God and God's power flows into us and we enjoy the union with God that Christ has won in his flesh. Notice that it is not faith itself that heals us, right? We're not looking to faith as our healer. It is God who heals us, but God heals us by faith. And this faith must begin with a recognition of the very truth that we've been dwelling on this morning. It must begin with the recognition that Jesus is indeed the God-man, that he is the only one who is worthy of all praise and all adoration, who is, on the one hand, fully God and like God in every way, and who is, on the other hand, fully man. This is the first step in taking that medicine that our bodies need in order for our hearts to be cured. This is the confession of Romans 10 verse 9, where the Apostle Paul tells us to believe that Jesus is Lord. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe and be willing to confess that Jesus truly is God become man. This is the first step of faith. But then, as Romans 10.9 goes on to say, you must believe that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And so the next step of taking the medicine of faith that our hearts so desperately need is to see what Jesus did as the God-man that he died as your representative, and then he rose again from the dead. You see, because Jesus is truly man, because he is like us in every way, he can truly be our representative. And so that means that when he goes and dies on a cross, God can look upon his son and he can actually see our twisted humanity. Because that is exactly what Jesus represented on that cross, because he was fully man. And so as man, Jesus died, he bore the penalty of all of our sins, and then he rose again to newness of life. And so this means that our bent natures themselves, in union with Christ, can be destroyed, can be crucified with Christ upon that cross, And we can be raised to newness of life. We can have new natures in our souls. We can be born as sons of God. Again, as Romans 10, 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Beloved, that's what is needed to receive a new nature. Do you believe this? Believing is taking this medicine. Believing is faith. 
It is allowing Christ to enter your heart, to get down into the very nature of who you are and straighten out everything that is bent and that is crooked. It allows him to change your very heart, not simply your actions day to day, but what you love and what you hate. Jesus is able to transform you in the very deepest parts of who you are. This is what Christ does because he is the God-man. Now, I know that there may be some here this morning who would say, well, pastor, I've already done that. I've already tried to do that. I've already believed, and yet I'm still so crooked. I'm still so messed up. I, I don't know if it really worked. Well, let me encourage you that on the one hand, some amount of crookedness will always remain while we are in this flesh. We will not be totally straightened out until we are raised from the dead and get to see God face to face. Only then will we be made perfect. But on the other hand, let me really press you. Have you really believed? Have you really experienced the transformation that comes through receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior? Let me try to explain what I mean by believe a little more deeply. Let's imagine that there were a man who had never heard the gospel before, who never heard that God became man. He never heard that the God-man then suffered the death that he deserved and rose again to newness of life, conquering death forever. He had never heard this good news. And yet, at the same time, let's say this man was very aware of the law of sin that dwelt in his body. He was very aware that he had some terrible habits, had done some terrible actions that he realized he was just unable to change. He realized how corrupt he was. And even though he tried and tried again to overcome his selfishness, overcome his sinfulness, he knew that he himself was never able to do that. Well, let's say this man hears this gospel, hears this good news that Jesus came to represent him, died for him, rose again so that he could become a son of God, so that he could get a whole new nature. How would that man receive that news? What would he think when he heard this news that Jesus Christ had come into the world and that there was a free offer of salvation to him if only he believed? Beloved, I think his response would be overwhelming joy. He would finally have the solution to the problem that burdened him for so long. He could feel the sinfulness of his soul. He did not know any cure for it. And here comes the news that there is a cure and that this cure can be had by belief alone. And so he responds with joy. And do you understand that he responds with joy precisely because he believes the news that he heard? You see, there is another alternative for a person like that, is there not? He could hear the news of Jesus Christ, that he came and died, but his response could be, you know what, this all sounds like a fairy tale. This all sounds too good to be true. And if that was his mentality, he wouldn't have any joy, right? He wouldn't be excited about the news of Jesus Christ. He would say, this is just some other fairy tale that someone's trying to tell me to solve my problem. But when he believes then he is filled with joy. And so the the joy is the belief. If you've ever had joy in the good news of Jesus Christ, if you've ever just rejoiced, celebrated that Jesus Christ came, 
so that your sins are forgiven, so that you can be adopted by God. If you have experienced that joy, then you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. But if every time you've heard this news and you just thought, well, that sounds great, but I don't understand why it's important for me or I don't understand what the big deal is. If that's always been your mentality, then, beloved, you've never really received this news. You've never believed it. You don't really believe it happened. There's a metaphor that Jesus gives us of a treasure hidden in the field. This is Matthew 13, 44. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man finds it, he sells all that he owns and he goes and he buys that field. So believing is like finding a treasure. Finding a treasure. Believing is not like finding a cardboard box in your front yard where you can look at it and you can say, oh, great, I have a cardboard box in my front yard. Believing is like finding a treasure in your front yard, where you see little flecks of gold sticking out of the ground, and you go and you pull one out, and you realize that it really is gold. And you run into your house, and you get a spoon or a spade or something, you claw at the ground, and you realize there's more gold. You go and you grab a shovel, and you realize there's even more gold, and you are rejoicing and full of joy because you've just discovered that there's a huge crate of gold buried right on your property. That is the sensation of belief, beloved, when you realize that this is pure gold, when you realize that this is a treasure. Christy and I once had an experience kind of similar to this. We went and we bought an old dresser from an antique store And we got home and we were putting things away in the dresser and we saw a couple dollar bills that were sticking out from underneath the the lining uh, on the bottom of the dresser drawers. And so we pulled up the lining a little bit and we found more dollar bills and we opened up another drawer and we pull up the lining and we see more dollar bills and we keep pulling out all this money that was hidden in the dresser that we had no idea that was there. And obviously the person selling it had no idea that it was there. And at the end of the day, we found that we had $1,700 just stuck in this old dresser. And we celebrated because we had over $1,000 of free money. And beloved, how much better is the news of the gospel? Better than thousands of thousands, better than millions of dollars, that our old nature is crucified with Christ and we get to become sons of God. Beloved, let us rejoice in this treasure that Jesus Christ has brought to us. Again, the heart of our faith is not moral improvement. It's not self-help. It is becoming sons of the Most High God. And I do say sons of the Most High God because even for the ladies who are here, you are also destined to become sons of the Most High God. The reason why the Bible always says sons is because sons were the ones that inherited everything from their fathers. Daughters did not inherit their father's property. And so when God says that we will all become sons of God, he is saying that all of you, men and women, will all inherit everything that belongs to Jesus Christ. You will all become sons of God. Again, I realize that some of you may be sitting here right now, listening to me talk with no genuine sense of wonder in your heart. No sense of joy in your heart about what Christ has done. And if that describes you right now, then I don't know what to tell you other than the fact that you have not yet believed. And I plead with you to open your eyes. 
You must understand the magnitude of your problem, that it is not simply wrong things that you do. It is a bent heart deep down. And until you believe in the message, the joyous message that Jesus brings, that Christmas is all about, that there is salvation, that there is a way for our disease to be healed, you will always wrestle with whatever your sin battle is, with whatever makes you guilty, with whatever is tearing you up right now. But when you come to Jesus Christ and you believe, then you realize you are a child of God and your guilt is gone. Your shame is gone. Your battle is transformed. And you experience joy that is full of wonder and glory. Beloved, this is good news. This is good news on the level of God becoming man. This is good news. And this also means that for each of us here who have believed, we all do still have that sinful heart and our attention to the wonder of the gospel often grows dull, does it not? Oftentimes we can start to think, oh, well, Jesus being the God-man, I already knew that. Jesus coming and dying for my sins, I already knew that. Jesus rising again from the dead, I already knew that. And so for those of us who find ourselves in that boat from time to time, we simply need to develop the spiritual discipline of finding ways to look at these truths again as if they were new, as if they were fresh. Maybe there are certain writers that really help you do that, certain speakers, other songs, whatever it takes to help you find the gospel anew, to restore its wonder. Just this past week, I read a couple portions of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, and it did that for me. It helped, me, helped to remind me of the wonder of what I believe. It is not simply old news that I need to move on to something more interesting or better now, but C.S. Lewis just has this gift of helping you see things as if you were on the outside and you're looking at it for the first time. And he restores that joy, that wonder of the fact that God became man. And so if you're not sure how to do that, well, that's a great thing to happen right here in the church body. We can encourage one another in doing that. We can recommend resources to one another. We can pray for one another. And so speak with one another about how can I refresh my soul in the wonder that is the good news of God becoming man, that I might become a son of God. Regardless of whether you are someone who has believed in the past and now is dull, someone who has never believed, there is one proper course of action for all of us, is there not? Come to Jesus. Jesus is the solution. Again, he is the reconciliation between God and man. He is the person who, in his flesh, bridges the gap between God and man. Jesus himself says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The more you know Jesus and the more you come to see of Jesus, the more you will know peace and hope and joy. Beloved, just this week I had to repent of my own works-bound religion. I realized that I had gotten so focused on trying to be good in different ways, trying to improve different ways, that I had lost sight of the one truly most important thing, and that is knowing God and being his son and enjoying that reality. Because that is what God has done. And it is only as we come to experience this love relationship with God that we'll know any kind of power over sin, 
any sort of freedom from guilt or shame, because that is precisely what God offers us in Jesus Christ. And so again, beloved, our first business of every single day does not need to be, how can I go about improving this or that, or what do I need to feel bad about from yesterday or earlier today? Our first business needs to be realizing that we have been adopted by God through Jesus Christ to know him forever and ever. And if we can have our hearts delight there, delight in knowing the Lord himself, delight in his nature being imparted to us, then we will know the true joy and power of the Christian life. Beloved, the message of Christmas is the message of God becoming man so that we could come to God. The message of Christmas was written, was performed for all of us who are far from God, who know that we are twisted deep down. And so I plead with you this morning to see how desperate your condition is, that you don't just need to change your behaviors or your lifestyles. You need a heart transplant. You don't just need a renovation. You need a whole new building. And it's only Jesus Christ that can give you this. And so if you want to be who God designed you to be, who God wants you to be, then you must lay aside any pretense that you have of knowing what's best for yourself. You must lay aside any idea that you have that you yourself are able to blueprint your own life or know what's best. You must come to God and be willing to say, Lord, if you will have me, I will be a beggar, I will be a king. I'll be a worm, I'll be a prince, I'll be stupid, I'll be smart, I'll be vibrant, I'll be dull, whatever you want me to be, God. My priority is not to live my own life in my own power. My priority is that I be created anew after the image of my Savior. And whatever that means for me, Lord, that is what I want. And so let's come to the Lord in that way, even now, as we pray prayers of intercession for ourselves and for this world around us. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we do confess that we are crooked deep down, and we do delight and proclaim that we do have a perfect Savior in Jesus Christ, the God-man. And so we thank you, Lord, for sending him. I pray, Lord, that you would help each of us to receive him more and more into our hearts day by day, that we would know the transforming power that does come through knowing our Savior. Lord, would you now hear our prayers of confession and our prayers of intercession?